I think the word you're looking for is weird. They're very weird. (laughs) Yes, and I've worked with them, and they are these slimy little monsters. Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give it medical advice. In fact, if you get any medical advice when we talk about Animal House, you've got some real problems. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we only have Swap from the filtrate. Swap? Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist from the University of Ottawa. I tweet at hswapnil. The only disclosure I have today is that I am not a physiologist, so I'm going to be floundering and asking for help. And we have, uh, we have two special guests with us. We have Kelly Heinemann. Uh, Kelly, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Heinemann from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Keeks PhD. And I was trained as a comparative physiologist. So I love all the weird and wacky animals that are out there in nature. Outstanding. And we have uh, Tiffany Trong. Uh, Tiffany, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Tiffany Trong. I'm a nephrology fellow currently at the University of Southern California, and I'm a lifelong learner, including of comparative physiology. Tiffany, you got one of the all-time great Twitter handles. Let it ha- let us have it. Uh, <laughs> that's true. And my Twitter handle is CRRTIFF. CRRTIFF. Nice. And our last special guest is Tim Yao. Now, Tim Yao has been part of the executive team of Neff Madness for how many how many years, Tim? Uh, this will be four, four, five years, five years, I think. Five, five years on the executive team. And really what we're trying to do is getting him to run the whole show. We're working on that so that we can retire to uh, a cabana in Mexico. So, uh, uh, Tim, why don't you introduce yourself? Great. My name's uh, Tim Yao. I'm a clinical nephrologist, med- medical educator. I'm at, um, Washington University in St. Louis. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at maximal underscore change. Maximal change. Another one of the all time great nephrology Twitter handles. Outstanding work. Today's Freely Filtered is not based on an FJC. It's based on my favorite March tradition of all, which is Neff Madness. This is year nine of Neff Madness. I remember one of the early challenges that we had when we first were pitching the idea uh, to AJKD about Neff Madness is they said, well, how are you going to come up with new topics every year? And I was thinking to myself, Look at how big and how fat that Brenner Rector book on my on my bookshelf is. I'm like, there's plenty of topics in nephrology. We won't we won't have any problems. And we have very rarely retread topics. But a few years ago, we had one of the all time great regions in Neff Madness history, which was Animal House. That's okay, great. Tim, tell me about Animal House One. All right, Animal House One, 2018. When we and, and do you remember whose idea it was? Because it's very different than the rest of Neff Madness. It's a really kind of a, a left field type of idea. We've always liked to kind of incorporate something that just feels a little different. And 
if I recall, mm-hmm. it was Matt's idea to to highlight this. Um, he had the idea also to bring in Mark Zydell as the uh, selection expert as we were talking about Mount Desert Island and origins of renal physiology. He, he's one of the people who has been running that for, for decades at this point. So he knows more about animals than just about anyone else. Him and Kelly are probably like the people that know more about animals and kidney physiology. And it was, I remember that call because it was so great. We, we, we had the call. We talked to Mark, kind of pitched the idea, and he just had a million great thoughts. I remember him bringing up the hopping mouse at that point, and the other ideas were just too good, and we couldn't fit in the hopping mouse because... So what? So I remember there was a camel, and there was a shark, and there was a salmon. What else was there? So the matchups were... So one matchup was kind of looking at osmolarity maintenance, and we looked at the shark and the salmon. And the shark is shark uh, osmolarity is cool because it basically has a a blood urea concentration of like about 1300 milligrams per deciliter and it, may, it makes up about 30 to 40% of its serum osmolarity and that's how it survives in a hypertonic environment. And then the salmon was the another cool one. I mean, the salmon's super cool because it's born in fresh water where it's in a external environment that is hypotonic. And so it needs to somehow get rid of water. And then it lives in the ocean for the remainder of its life where it's hypertonic. And so it now must get rid of salt and absorb water. And then it goes back and lays its eggs in fresh water for like the last days of its life. So it has to like constantly be dealing with hypo and hypertonicity in its environment. So that was one matchup. The other one was uh, water storage. And that's that was where we looked at the camel and its ability to basically drink a hundred liters of water if I recall within minutes after not drinking water for several weeks and its serum sodium would drop from like 190 to 130 within five minutes and the other water matchup was the toad bladder and how the toad bladder is ADH works at the toad bladder and reabsorbs water through the bladder and a lot of what we know about ADH was kind of discovered in toad bladders nice excellent excellent and we decided it had been a number of years and we thought you know what the animal kingdom is broad as it is deep and I bet we can come up with some good animals to do that and so we brought back this is Animal House 2 the sequel and what we have here is we have our selection committee member uh, Kelly and the writer for the session Tiffany and that's what we're going to talk tonight tonight we're all about Animal House This was one of the best written session sections in Madness. You did a phenomenal job writing this. But I got to know, did you come up with that Homer Smith quote to lead it off? Was that your work? Because that's amazing. I did find it. The first thing I did when I was asked to be a writer of this region was buy this book. And it's inspiring. It's informative. And Homer Smith has a way of educating at the same time that he pulls this story together. And it was probably one of the best decisions that I made early on when I was. Do you want to read that opening line? Because I just love it. Oh, yes. It is recognizing that we have the kind of internal environment we have because we have the kind of kidneys we have. We must acknowledge that our kidneys constitute the major foundation of our physiological freedom. Only because they work the way they do has it become possible for us to have bones, muscles, glands, and brains. Superficially, it might be said that the function of the kidneys is to make urine, but in a more considered view, one can say that the kidneys make the stuff of philosophy itself. He, he never leaves you wanting for more. He does a great job. This actually reminds me of the information underneath your Twitter. This is very similar to what to what you have in your profile. And mine, 
absolutely is channeling Homer Smith. That's exactly, that's where it comes from. It comes from the introduction to, from Fish to Philosopher. The similarity is very intentional. Uh, I definitely think every nephrologist out there should read some of the original Homer Smith papers. If you don't want to read the whole book of From Fish to Philosopher, that's fine. There are some, you know, the Homeric, Homeric view of kidney evolution, the reprint of Homer Smith's classical essay with a new introduction that was published in 2004 is just fascinating because the way he wrote about all these phenomena are just so interesting. And, you know, we don't talk like that very much these days. So I definitely think everybody should check it out. We're a lot more into lock them up than we are into, you know, the stuff of philosophy itself. Then there's this absolutely dynamite infographic right at the beginning that kind of tries to capture the whole field in one image. It has the evolution in the sea and then later evolution in marine teleosts and then evolution in freshwater and then uh, terrestrial animals. And you get the sense looking at this is that what you're seeing is that each one of these environments, saltwater, freshwater, and terrestrial environments had different pushes and pulls on development of this proto kidney. Can you walk through like what what what's going on in saltwater? What are the what are the main challenges for a saltwater kidney and what how can we use that to understand saltwater kidneys? Okay, so I think a couple things to maybe clarify. So I understand yes, code you know for you're an idiot, Joel. I get that. I'm good with okay. that. So just okay. just no need so, to co- no need to, no need to couch it. Just let it fly. Okay, but are are you going to re- record that part, or you want me to just correct you? No, I want you to just correct me. It make me look like a fool. Okay, okay, that works. So yeah, you know, life evolved in the sea, but vertebrate life, you know, after the hagfish and the lamprey, really evolved in freshwater. And so for a long time, people thought because our internal environment is about one third seawater, right? It's about three hundred milliosmoles that we probably evolved in seawater. Well, we now know that's not true. And so vertebrates actually evolved in freshwater. And so it's freshwater and secondary reentry into seawater and into land. So it maybe isn't the biggest distinction, but it's an important distinction in our history. But the goals of the kidney must be completely different saltwater and freshwater, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So in the freshwater environment, right, you are hyperosmotic to your environment. So you're constantly challenged by being water loaded. And so fishes in this environment have to deal with big volume loads all the time. And so they evolve to have this, you know, the sclomerulus and these nephrons that can handle large volumes of fluid. And so filtration became very important in the freshwater environment. So that is the quickest way to get the fluid out. Okay. So the aglomerular a seahorse could never exist in a freshwater environment. Exactly. You would never. You'd be so water loaded. You could never remove the water from your body fast enough without that filtration. So then when the fishes re-entered marine water, whatever the pressures were, if it was to find mates, if it was to find, you know, avoid predators, whatever, we don't know. Then now you're hypoosmotic to your environment, right? So you have the opposite problem. You're now constantly losing water and gaining salt. And so in that case, you really don't want to be filtering all this fluid from your body because you want to keep it. And so glomeruli tend to be smaller, or in the case of the aglomerular fishes, gone altogether. And so that, again, helps them to retain that water that even though they're in a water environment, freshwater or free water is hard to find. But they still got to get rid of a ton of solute, right? They're gonna, aren't they absorbing solute all the time? Yeah. So in fishes, it's not the kidneys that get rid of monovalent ions. It's the fish gill. And so the fish gill is another epithelial uh, cell layer. It's highly vascularized. It actually receives 100% of the cardiac output, right? And they have ion secreting cells in the fish gill. And in marine water, those cells secrete the excess sodium chloride. 
And in fresh water, those same cells can change the proteins that are expressed and they can reabsorb the little bit of ion that is in the water. Yeah. So isn't that the animal house one where salmon can go into fresh water as well as salt water? Exactly. So, you know, it's very few fishes that can actually survive in either salt or fresh water. Those are called urihaline, so true salt, true salt tolerance. And so the salmon's a perfect example of that. And so they can actually change their physiology so that if they're in a salt retaining situation, they can excrete the excess salt. And if they're in a water loading situation, they can keep the salt, but excrete the excess water. And so the ion regulation occurs at the gill. So the movement from fresh water to salt water had a lot of the same challenges as moving from fresh water to land, right? All of a sudden, you now need to hold on to water very tightly. Um, and then it also while still being able to get rid of salt. Do we see glomerular size and glomerular filtration rates lower on land animals compared to freshwater fishes? Oh, that's an interesting question. No, actually, I think it's higher because I think the cardiac output's higher in um, terrestrial animals than in the fishes. And so I think that would make sense, but I don't think that's what we see. I think generally, you know, blood pressure is lower in fishes, things like that. And so they have sort of different hemodynamics. In terms of conserving water, my understanding is that in land animals and mammals, uh, we've developed the loop of Henle in a way that we can conserve extra water rather than decreasing the glomerulus. Yeah, so not everybody on land has a loop of Henle though. It evolved in the birds which is kind of interesting, um, and in then obviously the mammals. And is that, do we think that's, is that one ancestor for bird or just two, it was invented to, discovered or developed two different separate times? So yeah, so it's a good question. I actually don't know the exact answer of it. So there's two possibilities. It was either in the common ancestors and then it was lost in the reptile lineage, right? Because reptiles and birds are more closely related than to mammals, or it involved independently. Yeah, Kelly, we've all watched Jurassic Park. We all know that, 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 yeah. uh, that, that dinosaurs yeah, came Birds from- are flying dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we yeah. got that. We yeah. got that. Yeah. <laughs> More Jurassic Park re- references, as many as we can get in in one in one in one podcast. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame you. Right, great movie, great book, great movie. Okay, either common ancestor or and if the, and if it was a common ancestor, it drops off in the reptiles because they don't have a loop. But all all birds got a loop, and all mammals have a loop. Yeah, but I will say birds are kind of unique because they have two types of nephrons. They have the, what we call the reptilian type, which are like the reptiles, which don't have a loop. And then they have the mammalian type, which have a loop. So they birds actually express both types of nephrons. So like, is it the same bird which has two types of yes, nephrons? Or yes. Some birds have nope. this kind of nephron. No, nope. they is, all have, is, they both have... Do they have two kidneys? Mm-hmm. And all the, all, all the reptile kidneys are on the left and all the mammal kidneys are on the right? <laughs> No, I don't think it works that way. Um, they definitely have um, paired beans like uh, mammals do. But yeah, it's uh, it's just interesting that they have birds have a mixed nephron population. And actually, there's a lot of old studies from Bill Dantzler's group who have shown a single nephron GFR and how... Uh, that changes with dehydration or salt loading. These mammalian types work much like they work in ours. They're almost 100% perfused, unlike the reptilian type. The reptilian type are only perfused when the animal needs them. And so um, there's some really interesting differences there. The ana- analogy to, the, to humans is that we have different populations of nephrons also, right? We have the ones closest to the medulla have the long loops, and the ones closest to the surface really have very modest loops of Henle and aren't really great for concentrating urine also. So similar to the birds, but not quite as extreme, I would imagine. Yeah, reading a lot of Burton Rose recently. Okay, let's let's move on. So that's a great jumping off point for the first pairing, 
we have hopping mouse versus marine iguana. And these are two different strategies for conservation of water and excretion of solute. Tiffany, why don't you tell us about the hopping mouse? So the hopping mouse has many adaptations in order to conserve water. Of course, with Neff Madness, we're most interested in how it can concentrate its urine, which is pretty impressive. It can concentrate its urine up to 9,370 milliosms per kilo. And that's a concentration of about 20 times its plasma osmolarity. So very impressive. And, you know, its kidney is not that different than ours, you know, compared to fish or other reptiles or anything Same basic plan. Same basic plan. So we use mice and rats as models of urinary concentration, trying to understand how we're creating these osmotic gradients. And desert mice, including the hopping mouse, because that that gradient is so marked, are great models to study. They also have many other adaptations that are pretty impressive as well. One of them being that they create their own water. It's called metabolic water from their food. And this is actually really impressive. They had a presentation during kidney week, actually, um, where they talked about metabolic water generation in a different animal. And I think it's it's just fascinating. There are some animals, if you take it a little away from the, the hopping mouse for a little bit, such as insects that can survive with essentially no water. One of these being the moths in your clothes. They, they essentially have no access to water and they... They create their own water. And is this anything different than just when we metabolize carbohydrates, we generate water? Is that is that all we're talking about here when you say metabolic creation of water? Yes. Yep. Exactly. And that's also with fats, right? Fats also generate water. The only one that doesn't is protein. And that becomes yes. a problem because you got to get rid of that nitrogen and that requires it to be dissolved in water. Yeah. That's the line always about DI, right? The kids with DI are always liking a high carbohydrate food so they can squeeze out a little extra water uh, yeah. out of their diet. If you're low in water, have more carbs and less protein because you're going to need to excrete that protein out. And that's um, some studies that they do in these mice. They actually can dehydrate the mice by feeding them high protein diets um, because they're not able to, they can concentrate their urine, but they still have to excrete all that nitrogenous waste as well. Excellent. Okay. So, okay. So we got the metabolic water generation, but I want to know about this 9,000. This sounds, this is a crazy number. So the, you're, you're dancing around the answer. These guys got super kidneys. Do they have three of them? Four kidneys? How many kidneys I got? Just two kidneys. It's just two small, you know, for, I guess, small for us, but probably normal size for them, kidneys. And they have longer loops of Henle. The relative size of the medulla in their kidneys is larger than in other animals. So the cortex to medulla ratio is smaller. Okay. Big medullas. Big medullas. Yeah. And I think that's reflective of their long loops of Henle. I, I bet when the hopping mouse go out to the bar, you can hear the boys going, look at the medulla on that one, right? <laughs> they objectify each other based on medulla. I've seen it a lot. There are other mechanisms as <laughs> Tiffany well. does not think I'm funny. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm really funny. She doesn't think I'm funny. Okay. It's okay. You don't have. We did not bring you on here to, to think that I'm funny. You are allowed to... To laugh at your bad jokes. Uh, that's right. You don't have to <laughs> laugh at my bad jokes. Okay. So okay. Okay. We got the we got the big medullas. The other thing that they <laughs> long medullas. Oh, they're big medullas. It's a it's Still a med- medulla. Cortex, right? It's a big medulla. Yeah. It's a very yeah, impressive medulla. medulla. It is. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So the the other thing that they have is being used as a model for urinary concentration. 
I am not sure exactly, you know, what is a difference of kind versus a difference of degree. Um, what things are just that they are more marked in, in this, in this mouse versus is this a, a different mechanism altogether? One thing that they, they do is a difference in degree would be that they seem to have more active ADH, like compared to other mice that are not um, from the desert. And I would say another another difference that is more of a degree of kind is... Well, one thing I would think about, the, the tight junctions would be seem like an area where I just don't think we could generate that kind of osmotic gradient, right? That we just have back diffusion of solute if you got it up to a, a, a ratio of 20-fold, right? Like, and I'm getting, you know, I don't know, but it seems like that would be an area that I would look for, you know, are there tight junctions tighter? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the idea is that the long longer the loop, so the longer you have the ability for the multiplier to occur, the more water you're going to be able to conserve. And so that's why having that larger medullary area and these much longer loops, you have a much greater interstitial gradient that is in this mouse than what could ever be in us, in our kidney. And so that is such key to the way they have evolved in this water deprived environment. And you know, these again, these mice only eat little seeds. And so they get no water from their environment. And so that metabolic water they need to hold on to, and they evolve this way of reabsorbing as much as they can with a really, really long loop of Henle and collecting duct. Yeah, there's a line there where you say, um, we picture the hormone arginine vasopressin, which is affectionately called antidiuretic hormone. And now you called it ADH. So what's the what's the story behind that? It's looks like, you know, I should not be calling it ADH. Uh, <laughs> so as someone who's a basic scientist, I never call it ADH. I always call it um, either vasopressin or properly it's arginine vasopressin. It itself has a really interesting evolution because it is actually highly related to oxytocin. And so when we look at the fishes, they don't have a vasopressin gene, they have a vasotocin gene. And so after, again, the common ancestor that led to the rest of the vertebrates, the vasopressin part and the oxytocin part became separate genes. And so in mammals, we have vasopressin or antidiuretic hormone, and we have oxytocin. But in animals below that, we have vasotocin, which functions in both things, water uh, reabsorption, and then uh, actually, I don't know a lot about oxytocin. I know it's important from pregnancy, but um, well, whatever it, else it does. And it, the pharmaceutical oxytocin that they give to induce deliveries, and that can cause an SIDH. Like it definitely has some water retentive property. So there must be some crossover in that in that receptor still. Right, because they're highly, you know, those those hormones are highly related. They used to be on the same gene. Now they've just been separate and specialized in the, in the vertebrates. And am I right the that the oxytocin is also secreted from the posterior pituitary? Do I have that? Am I remembering that yes, correctly? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So same location for secretion. So yeah, so these, these mice have, you know, probably more vasopressin, which is what you would expect because they are always sort of in a state of dehydration. And so that should be sensed by the, you know, the brain and, and lead to vasopressin release. And again, you know, we know ADH vasopressin acts in that collecting duct to insert those water channels and you need that to reabsorb that water. So if we have lots of water channels there and this huge medullary interstitial gradient, that's the best best way to keep as much water in this little mouse as possible. Okay. Anything else about the hoppy mouse we need to know? Because that's pretty good so far. They have really big, cute ears. They are super cute. It is a really yeah. cute animal. Yeah. I love the picture that you have here of it actually hoppy. Right now I get the name. <laughs> it's a good hopper. And talking of quotes, it starts off with a quote as well. Yeah. Who had the dune quote? Um, 
Oh, yes. I got that quote. Actually, I was looking for a quote about the desert. Um, I had read Dune many years ago um, and I had forgotten that the protagonist midway through the book chooses a name in the indigenous land of this sci-fi world that is a desert planet. And the name that he chooses is the name of the, the hopping mouse in this fictional <laughs> desert land, which is pretty amazing. I had forgotten that. So um, it's Maudib. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but Maldib is the name of the hopping mouse in this, in this desert. And, and is it the guy's name Paul? In the, is yep. it, am I, yeah. Is, Did you read yeah, it? Paul. Yeah, it's Paul. Yeah. Oh, I read it when I was a, a ninth yeah. grader, like a long, long time ago. My son read it recently. It, there's, a, there's another movie know, coming the previous in. Look yeah, awesome. there's a movie previous coming look awesome. out. I grew up on the Sting yeah. movie. And Patrick Stewart. Yeah, if it's the oh, mascot of, that. a, right. of a desert planet, then it's hard to beat. Oh, that the mascot of a desert planet. So good good quote. Tiffany, strong writing, excellent work. Delightful, delightful. Okay, let's talk about sneezing salt. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly, give us give us the rundown on the on the marine iguana. All right. So the marine iguana is one of these fascinating examples of an extra renal salt secreting organ. And so, yes, an animal has one. You heard about the rectal gland in the shark. Cute, but it's not sneezing out salt. We don't and even so, have to call it cute. You know, Come on, it's a rectal gland. Not I cute. I mean, not cute. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The name implies that, but <laughs> so. So the marine iguana, right? These guys live down in the Galapagos and, you know, they're surrounded by water, but it's all this salt water. And so, you know, how are they going to survive? They eat this diet that's full of just salt. And so they have this extra renal salt gland that comes out of their nasal cavity. And so again, it's able to secrete large amounts of sodium chloride. And because of the amount of sodium chloride in there, which is about 1400 millimoles of sodium, right? It actually crystallizes. And so when they really want to kind of get rid of it all, they'll just do a little sneeze. And so there's some great YouTube videos of the marine iguana sneezing out its salt load. So pretty cool. And they have so much salt, it accumulates on their face that they have um, this, what's called the salt crown, I believe. Pretty amazing. So is it no lizards? Is that all lizards don't have a loop of Henley? Is that right? It's a reptile. Right. All reptiles. reptiles no all reptiles. Henley. Right. No lupa henley. So the, on, the only way they can concentrate their salts is by having an extra renal salt gland. And so is, now, not every, okay, tell me, that's what, that's not every reptile has okay. one, right? These are the marine reptiles, much like it's only the marine birds that have these extra renal salt glands. Because in the freshwater environment, you don't have this problem, right? You want to hold that salt. So it's just these marine reptiles and the marine. So sea turtles have them. Sea snakes have them. The marine birds, like we talked about. The shark has the rectal gland. Uh, fishes use their fish gill. So so these are all the extra renal salt organs. And if we're going to brag a little bit, the marine iguana has the best salt gland, guys, because if you compare it to the sea snake, it only secretes about 600 millimoles of sodium. Again, this marine iguana salt glands pumping out 1400 plus. So it is the the best salt gland you can have. Right, so to put it in perspective, seawater is about 513, right? 3% saline is like seawater. And so it is threefold seawater. Okay. So no reptiles have a loop of Henley. Anyone that live by the sea, they have to have an extra renal salt gland. And this Galapagos marine iguana is the winner. It generates the most salt there. Okay. Do we think metabolically, has anybody done the work? Is this more efficient than having a loop of Henley? Would we be better off with a salt gland than a loop than a loop of Henley? Like would the uh, would the hopping mouse be better off if it could sneeze salt than having to have these super long loops of Henley, which seems super energy intense? Well, I guess you got to think about it. there's two things, right? Like we have a long loop because 
because we're conserving water. And so these guys don't, you know, they need to conserve water, yes, but they have to deal with not just saving water, but getting rid of this huge salt load because they eat they eat the marine life that's full of yeah, all these can, salts. If all you can excrete kelp. sodium at 1,400 millimoles per liter, you can drink salt water all day long and you're fine. No, really. I mean, that, <laughs> that's true. Right. Although although I don't think they do drink the salt water. You know, marine fishes do. Uh, they'll drink the salt water and then excrete at the gills. But I, I'm not sure the marine iguana directly drinks salt water. Um, it probably incidentally does. But um, you're right. You think it could. Definitely capable if it can secrete this much. But yeah, I mean, there must be a reason. We don't know. You know, unfortunately, all we can do is look at an animal today and say, what do we think it went through its evolutionary history? But we'll never know. Um, so for whatever reason, you know, Lupa Henleys came later. And these extra renal salt organs have been around since, you know, the vertebrates evolved, right? The kidney wasn't the major salt regulating organ until we got to, you know, the amphibians. So I think your question is, does the hopping mouse win or does the iguana win? Is it the loops of Henle or is it the salt gland? And that's the question of Neff madness. Oh, right, right. That's really the question. Absolutely. What choice would you make? What makes more sense to have the long loop of Henle and a solid urine? versus uh, sneezing salt. Sneezing salt is cool. You know, we can't we can't have crystals forming in our kidney or we know what that leads to, right? And so it's kind of interesting that the marine iguana didn't really use its kidney for salt balance. It uses it for water balance. And the hopping mouse, on the other hand, you know, yes, it needs to conserve salt too, so the kidney can do that. And it needs to conserve water, so the kidney can do that. So it kind of makes sense that they wouldn't have an extra renal uh, salt gland to me. But, you know, again, whatever the pressures were in evolution, I don't know. What's the deal? It says that the, you have a line here that has the lowest sodium to potassium ratio of any marine reptile. What, what's the significance of the sodium to potassium ratio in terms of the excretion of these uh, ions? I think most salt glands, they predominantly secrete sodium chloride with a small degree of potassium. And the marine iguana has a higher proportion of potassium that it secretes as well, possibly because of the diet that it has of algae, seaweed, that it can also excrete some of this potassium. I don't know necessarily, and I'm not sure it's known in general, that they can regulate their potassium excretion as well um, with this salt gland, because that sounds very similar to a kidney. But in general, Right, it's moving in on our organs. I don't like the salt gland. This thing is getting me some degree of potassium off. chloride excretion, but in the marine iguana, they have... They have more considerable potassium excretion too. Anything else interesting about the uh, about this iguana? I mean, do we do we know anything about things like blood pressure or what have you? You know, I'm sure there is something there. Uh, uh, these are not great models to use, of course, unlike <laughs> rice and uh, sorry, mice and and rats right. that we are typically use. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we could all just get grants and go down to the Galapagos and you know put on a cuff <laughs> on a marine iguana? That'd be pretty cool. So you know, I think uh, when it comes to salt glands, we know a lot less about the marine iguana, probably because they're highly protected and all these things, right? Um, so yeah, at least in our research, I don't know, Tiffany, if you came across one, but um, the best we could do were find these secretions, the concentration of the ions coming out in the secretions. But um, I don't know a lot about their blood pressure or what's going on with them. That's pretty much it. I think the interesting thing to know about the salt gland is between the salt gland and the kidney, those are the only two organs that we know in vertebrates that secrete a hypertonic solution. Those are the only things that can concentrate and make a concentrated solution. And the way the kidney does it is very different. We filter 
and then we reabsorb, and that creates the concentrated solution. But the gland, the salt gland, uses secretion, which I guess will take us into our next animal. But secretion also plays an important role, and I think maybe it's underestimated because um, we're we're taught about this filtration reabsorption system. But secretion plays an important role in, in many animals. Tiffany teed us up. Let's go to the second half of the bracket, the bottom half of the bracket. We have seahorse versus the disgusting hagfish. Matt's favorite entry in Neff Madness. He's been he has been going hard, hard on Team Hagfish. Okay, who who wants to take the seahorse and who wants to take the hagfish? How do you want to? Oh, I've got we got to give Kelly the hagfish. That's her her life. Yeah, I'll work. do hagfish. So Tiffany, you're back up. Yeah. tell us about <laughs> gladly, the seahorse. Gladly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't want anything to do with that hagfish. Right? <laughs> Tiffany and Matt can have it. Okay, Tiffany, tell us about the seahorse. All right, the seahorse is a pretty special animal. Hopefully nobody's too attached to their glomeruli because it has none. And that's what is highlighted in Neff Madness this year. The fact that despite not having glomeruli, they're able to make a urine that is of similar composition and with similar flow rates as a glomerular fit. When this was discovered in fish like the seahorse, but also including the seahorse, People didn't know that the tubules were able to secrete constituents and what the importance of secretion was. It has even been called an acerbic controversy, which I found really fascinating that we could have um, something that controversial in nephrology, but we didn't know. And people thought maybe the tubules are just there to reabsorb. So knowing that the tubules are able to secrete things, then we wanted to know what kind of things would they secrete and what would they not. In, in other words, how would the composition be different from a glomerular filtration reabsorption system? And one of the things that they found was that a, a kidney that does not have glomeruli will not excrete protein. Will not, they won't secrete protein and carbohydrates. Those things are valuable to animals. And you would only see that kind of in some glomerular states. And that discovery actually led to us using inulin, which is a carbohydrate, and being able to measure glomerular filtration using that. So what we know about the tubules has helped us actually to also discover more about the glomerulus. So wait a minute, wait a minute. If, how, how, do, how do these animals get rid of nitrogenous waste? They secrete it. They secrete it. Yep. And are they, are they secreting, is it urea in this case, or is it ammonia? What are they, what are they actually secreting here? So in the fishes, it's, you know, again, it's not the kidney that secretes or excretes majority of your nitrogenous waste, it's the fish gill. And so the fish gill is this multifunctional organ. We've already talked about how it can secrete sodium chloride, but it also secretes all majority of the nitrogenous waste, which in the fishes is usually ammonia. And we'll talk a bit more about that when we talk about the hagfish, but they secrete this ammonia at the gills. And then of course, the gill is also where uh, gas exchange occurs. So acid-base regulation, ion balance, nitrogenous waste excretion, gas exchange, that all help it happens at the fish gill, which is why, again, it's 100% perfused and is quite different from us. The <laughs> task given to these aglomerular kidneys is smaller than the task that we ask other kidneys to do. They don't need to deal with, they don't need to do with the uh, the sodium excretion. They don't need to deal with the nitrogenous waste excretion. So what are they? What are the major roles of these aglomerular kidneys? What are they getting rid of? Right. So they can secrete water and they can secrete the divalent ions. So usually it's a lot of magnesium, phosphate, sulfate. That is used. That's what the kidneys are used for. But it's interesting because fish kidneys and aglomerular kidneys still can reabsorb. So especially with a glomerular kidney, you will 
get some filtration of glucose, maybe a little bit of protein, but just like our proximal tubules, they'll take that up. And so again, the ultra filtrate at the end or the final urine should be devoid of sugar, should be devoid of protein, just like it is in mammals. In the description, there's a nice figure which talks about the renal portal system where they you know there's a the renal vein and, and the caval vein, caudal vein. Uh, has a huge so I mean the use of the portal system it kind of makes me think of the liver maybe uh, in some respects or I don't know if that's too far-fetched for thinking here it's just like a different organ it it is different because unlike us where we have our two beans or in like mammals they have the two discrete organs this is really a series of hematopoietic tissue that is you have these tubules you have this vasculature and it kind of goes along the um, dorsal side of the fishes and so you don't open it up and see you know two kidneys there looking at you it's very different looking and I think that's what this panel or figure you're talking about is trying to trying to show it's a little different um, anatomy tiffany can you read the homer smith quote here this is another great quote of course of course what engineer wishing to regulate the composition of the internal environment of the body would devise a scheme that operated by throwing the whole thing out 16 times a day and rely on grabbing from it as it fell to the earth only those precious elements which he wanted to keep just showing the bizarreness of the glomerular system. So great. So great. And the seahorses just dispense with all this. And I finally understand the joke, you know, how do you treat nephrotic syndrome in a seahorse? You don't. They can't get nephrotic syndrome, right? <laughs> Timothy used to just torture me it's with classic that Classic joke. Classic joke, yeah, right? Classic. Right after, classic joke. Right after why the chicken went across the road is, you know, how do you how do you treat nephro- <laughs> mm-hmm. nephrotic syndrome in a seahorse, right? It's just like so know, true. My kids are always jo- always pulling that stuff on me. Tim, what are your thoughts on the seahorse? I mean, that that joke is like next level nerdy. So I I appreciate it though. I have never heard that, but I. <laughs> I think that just takes everything about nephrologists and takes it to to the next level. Um, So I'm reminded of like a a lot of what you guys are saying. When I wrote the Animal House region a couple of years ago and what Kelly was saying about salmon gills or fish gills in general, when when I wrote the section on salmon and maintenance of osmolarity there, I had always just been under the impression that the gills are just like the lungs. All they do is just oxygenate and like that's their function. And I had no idea that they were virtually the kidneys as well. And the kidneys in the, in the salmon at least did very little with regards to the work compared to the gills. And so I think it's just really interesting how when you think about these animals and you think how can an aglomerular kidney work, it's because they have uh, adaptations elsewhere in their body that are able to kind of handle all of these things, right? So like you have gills, you've got kidneys, maybe you've got like a rectal gland that can take care of salt. Maybe you've got like specialized salt channels in your uh, GI tract that can deal with all the salt water ingesting. So I think it's just evolutionary adaptations that say the kidney doesn't need to do all this work because all these other organs have kind of taken up some of the slack evolutionarily over time. It's interesting because we always think, you know, oh, mammals are number one, you know, you know, they're up there. But all these, you know, the fishes have been around for 300 billion years, sharks for 500 billion years. So actually, the fish gill was first before did these functions before our kidney was even a thought. And so it's kind of interesting that as we've changed environments and the different evolutionary pressures, we've now got these different organs and different ways of remaining in balance. But what's really cool is at the cellular level, the mechanisms are very well conserved. So although the fish gill seems like this crazy thing that's doing gas exchange, ion balance, nitrogenous waste, those cells express the same proteins that are expressed in our kidney cells. There is a lot of things that are conserved. They're just repackaged in a different form. And sometimes easier to study, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
And, you know, when you look at a, a diverse group of species that go across this large evolutionary scale, things that are highly conserved must be really important that they're still around. And so actually looking back at some of these, like looking at fishes really does tell us a lot about our own health because for example, sodium potassium two chloride, right? Like NKCC2, so important. It's where ferrosamide acts, acts. And you know, that is expressed in the fishes and that was important for salt secretion and, and salt uptake in the fishes. And so these things are there because they're important. And so I think we can learn a lot by, by looking at a diverse group of species. I also remember like a Twitter poll a couple years ago where it was like, are you on team glomeruli or team tubule? And my instinct is glomeruli just because I like the diseases that are associated with glomerular disease. But when you think about the kidney, at least the human kidney, the tubules are way cooler. Yeah. I mean, the glomerulus is just a filter. <laughs> Oh, no. exactly the tubule right. decides what we keep or what we excrete. Team tubules, yes. Yeah. Spoken <laughs> like a hypertension guy. Okay. Uh, that brings us to the ultimate or the last uh, member of this region, the hagfish. Kelly, wax poetic about the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I mean, even the name, right? Hagfish. It's not like some nice fish. It's like a hagfish. Well, Tiffany, your quote here you know, is outstanding also. Do you want to read the quote? It is pretty funny. Yeah, from the Smithsonian. Hagfish are widely considered the most disgusting animals in the ocean, if not on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to tell you why I think they're super cute. So <laughs> hagfish, right? These are, again, these. this is the oldest known vertebrate. And it's actually controversial whether or not they're a vertebrate because as adults, they don't actually have vertebrae. But developmentally, they do go through a vertebrate stage. And so I do think it's appropriate we consider them the vertebrates. But regardless where you are on that controversial subject, these are these uh, really kind of eel-like, snake-like fish. They actually live in marine waters and deep cold waters, and they burrow themselves into dead, decaying whale carcasses, fish carcasses, whatever. And they eat these dead things things from the inside out. And so that's why they have to produce a lot of slime. And, you know, they have these really weird mouth pieces that they are like grinding through this decaying carcass. And so with that comes a lot of challenges to your physiology, right? So first of all, they eat a very large protein diet. Second of all, they're in this decaying critter. And so it's a very high ammonia, high urea environment. And yet these guys, that's how they survive and thrive. And then of course, they're most widely known for being these slime generators and having worked with them directly. Yes, like the slime is unbelievable how much they can produce and it sticks to you and it's hard to get off and it's crazy. So that's probably why it says don't Google, but I think everybody should Google. The hagfish is very, very fascinating. I heard the slime is actually not very sticky. Is that true since you've touched it? Oh no, I find it very sticky. Once you get it on you, it's very hard to get it off. You have to get it off when it's wet. If it dries, it's like crazy. So hagfish have a really interesting skin. And so I think as we um, talk about in the Neff uh, Madness article that Tiffany wrote, that their skin can actually secrete various ammonia and urea and um, excrete various ions. But what's kind of interesting is that people make purses out of their skin because it's kind of a, I guess, a weird industry where you can have your hagfish skin wallet or purse because it feels so soft and nice. Yeah, so these guys are kind of interesting because they have to deal with a huge nitrogenous waste, both in the environment and in their bodies. And so again, ammonia is very cheap to make. It doesn't cost us a lot of cellular ATP, but it's highly, highly toxic. So as long as you're in a 
water environment, it can diffuse away very easily. Um, but for us on land, you know, we can't accumulate large amounts of ammonia in our body or we would be in toxic um, state all the time. So we actually spend a little ATP to convert our ammonia to urea, which is less toxic and then can easily be excreted by the kidneys. So hagfish, you know, they they do produce some urea, but they generally have are really good at handling ammonia. And so that makes them kind of a unique model. Then the other thing I should say about them, they're the only vertebrates that are an ion conformer. So yes, we heard about the shark and how its blood is full of pee or full of urine. That's interesting. But these guys, their blood is salt water. And so they have a thousand milliosmoles of seawater running through their blood. So they don't actually regulate their ions. And so that's amazing that they don't have nerve problems or, or go into cardiac arrest or whatever, you know, they are able to be osmo and ionoconformers. That is amazing. Every cell must have to adapt to that environment in order to function appropriately. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So then they're a great model to ask, well, why can't our cells do that? Why do we maintain our extracellular sodium and our intracellular potassium so tightly? And so the hagfish might be a good way of figuring out why, why that is. What I found really fascinating about the hagfish is that it was considered one of the earliest living vertebrates. And looking at it and looking at human embryology and the, the development of the kidney, I don't think I ever understood embryology before in medical school until kind of going through evolution and looking at, you know, what does the pronephros do and what is its function in this animal? And then why did that degenerate and then develop into a mesonephros? And then that stopped there at a different animal and then finally developed into a metanephros, which is what we decided to keep. Who knows? Maybe there's something after metanephros in the future. It's true. So this, this, you know, relationship between evolution and development, so we call that evo-devo, is amazing. And the, the nephron development is the perfect example of evo-devo, of going through this. So yeah, all of the animals up until the reptiles really are just a uh, mesonephros, as you said. And it's not till we get to the reptiles, the birds, and the mammals do we have a metanephric kidney that is the final functional kidney that we have. So again, we go through those different stages in our kidney development because it's left over from our evolutionary history. Any other things that we need to know about the 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 hagfish? Like, so they live they very metabolically inactive, right? So they don't waste energy getting converting ammonia to urea, but that's kind of, you said that's pretty typical across a lot of fish, right? If you have access to tons of water, no need to waste that energy, just let it dissolve away. That's kind of a terrestrial adaptation is urea. Exactly. And they can secrete their nitrogenous waste through their skin. As well. Yes. Yeah. No wonder that slime is disgusting. It's pee. <laughs> that's true. Oh. Oh, nasty stuff. How, how stoked would you be in like the next Spider-Man movie if like Peter Parker was in chemistry lab and he's like working with a hagfish and like utilizing the slime to create his webs? I mean, that that would be awesome. So he won't be a Spider-Man. He'll be a hagfish man. Uh, Tiffany, any other highlights of the hagfish that you remember from writing this section? The one thing I would like to highlight is contrary to the seahorse, it has enormous glomeruli. I would oh, say right. its kidney is basically, first of all, it's not in one area. We think of kidneys as organs in just discrete places, but in the hagfish, there are nephrons that are segmented throughout its body. And in each segment, there is a nephron. <laughs> and I think it, it's a pretty useful model for things like glomerular filtration barrier characteristics, anything really that has to do with the glomerulus. Excellent. So, and they only have like 32 nephrons, right? Something like that. It's a- 32. 32 really big nephrons. Jumbo nephrons. Okay. Jumbo nephrons. That's right. Timothy, this is right up your alley. They got maximal nephrons. 
<laughs> Can you imagine minimal change in a maximal nephron? And then anything else on the hagfish that anybody wants to, to chat about? Or are we kind of done with hagfish? They're fascinating. We need to know more about them. Okay. We must fund more hagfish research specifically for Kelly. Okay. Yeah. You heard it here. <laughs> Write your congressman and say, I don't think we know enough about hagfish. Okay. Who cares about cancer or kidney failure? Yeah, we need hagfish. Been, we, uh, hey, the hagfish may answer some of those questions. We just don't know. We haven't fully, ex- we have exactly not right. exhausted all the hagfish therapeutics that are waiting for us. When you're in your lab and you're like, oh, we need more hagfish. How do you go about acquiring them? Do you just like call your local hagfish? So, program? okay. So I'm not currently a hagfish researcher. So full disclosure there. But back in my day, when I was doing my PhD and I was a comparative physiologist. Uh, We worked at the marine lab in Maine at the Mount Desert Island Biological Marine Lab. And so at that time, there was running seawater at the lab. We had access to all the different organisms in and around the Maine area. And so, yeah, there were fishermen who would go out to the deep sea and knew how to catch hagfish. And so it's kind of like putting your order in for your mice or rats these days. You just call up the distributor and tell them I need a dozen hagfish and they would tell you, when you could come pick them up. And so you would just go with coolers full of salt water and ice and aerators and drive the truck down there and dump them in and bring them back to the lab. Nice. We have gone through this bracket. Let's make the call. So uh, let's go through. We're going to go around the horn. Hopping mouse or marina guadna. Swap. What do you got? Oh, sneezing, sneezing iguanas. Sneezing, yeah, you like the sneezing salt. Uh, Kelly, what do you got? Oh, yeah, marine iguana all the way. Tiff? The hopping mouse. Uh, Tim? I, I, I'm going to go hopping mouse, too. That that hyperosmolarity is too high, so you're the tiebreaker. I'm the tiebreaker, and they are cute. I am going hopping mouse. <laughs> ah. Okay, bottom of the bracket, bottom of the bracket, starting with swaps, seahorse or hagfish? Sorry, Kelly. You know, I don't like gloms, so, you know, I like the tubules. So the, you go uh, seahorse. Seahorse, yes. Kelly, what do you got? I'm going for the hagfish, man. All hag. Team hagfish. Hag. Tiff? Yeah. I already declared myself earlier. I'm for the seahorse. Seahorse. And Tim? I, I am also for the seahorse. I'm going the other way. I've got, I got hagfish here. I got hagfish. Definitely. Okay. And then let's do your champion for the region swap. Who's your champ? So it's going to be seahorse versus iguana. Yeah. Let's take the seahorse all the way. I like to build. You got sea, seahorse emerging from the animal house region. Kelly, who do you have coming out of the animal house region? I'm, I'm going marine iguana, sneezing salt. It's number one. Tiff? The seahorse. The seahorse for the win. Yes. Tim? Definitely. I'm going to stick with Hopping Mouse. I think it's uh, I think it's the cutest and the saltiest. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you, Tim. I got Hopping Mouse emerging from the Animal House region with the ultimate loops of Henley. You know, I mean, if you call yourself a tubulologist swap, I can't believe you wouldn't go with uh, the ultimate tubule in the, in the Hopping Mouse. Okay, we're going to do tubular secretions. So we're asking if you have a, net, a tubular secretion related to something else in death madness, go with that. If you don't have that, you don't need that. Swap, do you have something ready? Yeah, so I, I actually like, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff in Death Madness, right? There's the hip, yeah, like the, the animal house, the, the COVID uh, region completely, the hip stabilizers, you know, I like IV iron versus the oral iron debate. But I think what's really important for us is the primary care region. I, I really like that primary care region, which is, which seems, you know, it's it's one of those, like the, remember the, the depression region that we had a couple of years ago. Uh, it, it may seem 
not very glamorous and exciting, but it's really, really important for our patients, you know, should transplant patients be seen by the primary care doctors? Should CKD, you know, should there be, you know, more primary care involvement in management of CKD or that kind of stuff or, or GFR versus albuminuria, right? People talk about GFR, but really albuminuria is so important. Yeah. And, and the thing about transplant and CKD, should they be seen by primary care? That's actually not an option. They are being seen by primary care, right? Like it's inevitable that they're going to be seeing them, especially, you know, CKD, which is so common, right? One in, I think it's one in six patients in the primary care office has CKD. Like they are a major part of, C- of primary care. Primary care doctors just need to be comfortable taking care of CKD and kind of knowing, you know, the outline of what they should be doing. And I think that's super, that's super important. I completely agree. And transplants the same way. Those patients are going to bump into the primary care doctors and they need to be competent handling those types of situations. Uh, Tiff, what did you like from uh, from Neff Madness 2021? Can't go Animal House. We know that you like Animal House. You know, when the regions came out, I immediately looked at the house that was right next to us, the liquid biopsy. And it is very, very well written. I, I think Caitlin Vashar did an amazing job writing that region. As she but always in terms does, of overall she's a superstar. Winner, in terms of overall winner, I'm looking at the anemia region and hip stabilizers. I think as a, a novel therapeutic and all of the developments that have been going on over the last several years and currently with hip stabilizers, it's something to watch. Outstanding. Tim, what, what, what regions were you running this year? Uh, I ran artificial kidney and workforce both this year. Oh, those are two interesting topics. What, what do you got from that? I'm going to go artificial kidney as probably the one that was that I personally learned the most from. I mean, it's something that the future of, of dialysis is something that is always talked about. And I don't think it really became clear to me until I worked on this region. The, the argument could be made, it's not ready for prime time yet. And that we're not going to be seeing any of these devices for the next, you know, five, maybe even 10 years. But I think as far as getting people excited about the future, Future, that's probably the the region that got me the most excited in Neff Madness 2021. Okay, Tim, here's my question for you. Like a Xeno transplants, it's always one major breakthrough or five years away before we're going to be able to be growing pigs for transplants. And it's been that way for 20 years. Put a date on it. When are we going to have bioartificial kidneys? Is it 10 years, five years away, 10 years away, 20 years away? What do you think? I think it depends on money more than anything, to be honest. I was listening to a podcast interview with Shuva Roy, who's a biomedical engineer at um, UCSF, who's working on this bioimplantable artificial kidney. And, and he, he put something into perspective for me. He said, what we're doing is not discovery science. We're not like trying to make the breakthrough. We have the technology. We just need to have the money to make it happen. And he's like, and there are a lot of probably unforeseen things that are going to happen as we're starting to do it. But we're not trying to discover things along the way. We already know that this works. We just need to kind of push forward and see it happen. I, I think 10 years. 10 years. I like that. That's cool. That is really cool. Kelly, you said you didn't have any Neff Madness calls, but is there something you want to talk? You said you want to talk about uh, Mount Desert Island or something like that? Yeah, the Mount Desert Island Biological Lab is such a magical place for so many reasons, but I think especially for people who are interested in nephrology or, or kidney function, because all of the, the big guys in the field used to have summer labs there. And it's an environment that embraced PhDs and MDs. And it started out as this little lab on the coast, you know, it's in Salisbury Cove, Maine, and then now has been built up to a year round facility that's state of the art. They've got green buildings, certified green buildings. It's just amazing. And so I think one of the really cool opportunities that's come about from the lab the last 20 years is the development of these courses. So you can apply for the ASN TREX program, and they have that at the Mount Desert Island Biological Lab. There is the Origins of um, Renal Physiology course at the MDIBL. I partake in the course that's um, predominantly for the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. 
Kushner, which is the comparative physiology. But just, you know, realizing Homer Smith was up here and E.K. Marshall and all of these guys, Frank Epstein. So I used to spend my summers as a PhD student. We had a summer lab there. And it's just an amazing environment. Uh, first of all, gorgeous because you're in Acadia National Park. But then just knowing the history and all the different organisms and all the amazing um, physiology that was understood by working at that lab, it's just a magical place. And I think anybody who has been there would say the same thing. So definitely, you know, follow the at MDIBL on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram because, you know, I'm also always jealous of the, well, maybe not in the winter, but at least in the summer and the fall, how gorgeous it is up there. I think you're speaking to the workforce region because I definitely remember hearing about MDI as a resident and hearing that, oh, a bunch of nephrology fellows go there and learn about renal physiology and they do all these experiments on fish. And I thought that was fascinating. And I think that stimulates interest in nephrology. In fact, I'm going to go with the workforce region and I'm going to go with uh, private practice. Right now, uh, people are always talking about the importance of of diversity when we think about it. And I think we are missing a lot of diversity in our leadership in nephrology with private practice. So if you take a look at the leadership of ASN, and if you just go through all the counselors, and if you go through all the chair people of all the committees, you will not find a single private practice physician among them. They will occasionally be a private practice physician in a in an occasional position. I know Katie Kwan is uh, on a couple committees or at least one committee with ASN. Private practice docs rep- represent two-thirds of the membership of ASN, and it's time that we had a little bit more representation throughout ASN. And, uh, and so was, I was delighted to see that make an appearance on uh, Math Madness. Hey guys, this was awesome. Thank you for joining us. 